In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. You've heard these words before, right? They are the summary of the law and prophets and of the Christian life. And they're so familiar and obvious that we probably nod our heads in affirmation and skim right over them. But something in Matthew's telling gives me pause today. A lawyer, one of the Pharisees, asked this question to test Jesus, which is the greatest commandment? Seems like a fair enough question to me, so why is this a test? Well, according to Jewish tradition, there are 613 commandments in the Hebrew scriptures. And if Jesus were to pick, say, number 597, what does that say about the other 612 commandments? What does that say to the people who hold those other commandments dear, or perhaps have made them into their own agendas? It's a dilemma every politician knows. We see that all around us right now. But Jesus, Jesus cares for all of those people, for all of God's people. And he takes the law seriously, so seriously that he refuses to reduce it to a single rule or to diminish a single law. Jesus points to the heart of the law, those two commandments that unite and undergird all the others. Love God and love your neighbor. Jesus' answer would have been embarrassingly familiar and obvious to the Pharisees as it is to us. Like them, we know these words. We can recite them. We can find them in our Bibles. And like the Pharisees, we need to hear this teaching again and again because knowing the words up here in our heads isn't enough. We must seek to discern what they mean and what they look like in our lives. And we must do them. The fact is that too often we, like the Pharisees, would much rather settle on a simple targeted rule that we can prioritize over all others and apply in no uncertain terms, a position that we can advocate absolutely in all situations. And in this way, we, perhaps like the Pharisees, may be seeking to protect ourselves from the contingencies of the moment, from the uncertainties and confusion of real discernment and real relationships with real people and the real living God. A simple targeted rule is much more manageable, isn't it? And less risky than loving God and loving our neighbor, whatever that means. Yes, whatever that means. I'm afraid that these words are so familiar that we assume that they are simple, too. And they are simple, 
when I'm at my desk by myself, poring over my Bible, or when I'm feeling particularly holy and loving. But their meaning is not so clear in the middle of a tense election season or an argument with my spouse. It's not so clear when so many people are hurting and despairing and raging. It's not so clear when a weathered man holds up a cardboard sign outside my car window that says, homeless, need help. No, the fact is that as soon as I pull my nose up out of the Bible, as soon as that loving feeling wanes, as soon as it becomes inconvenient or awkward, these commandments become more paradoxical and challenging. Commandments, yes, Loving God and loving our neighbor are commandments. Something intentional, active is required here, which runs counter to the all-too-common notion that love is something that happens to us, that it's a feeling that overtakes us and makes us feel nice and want to do nice things. But what happens when that feeling disappears, or when we can't conjure it ourselves. What happens is that we do love anyway. We show up anyway. We choose love anyway. We choose kindness, curiosity, compassion, forgiveness. We choose humility, service, we choose the good of the other. It's not always an easy choice to make because it almost always means giving something up, giving up something of our self-image or self-righteousness, pride, security, privilege. It might mean giving up something of our agenda or our own right, money or time. Love, love in the biblical sense, is always concrete, embodied, active. Anyone can love in theory or in general, or when they're sitting by themselves at a desk in a prayerful mood. But loving the person, the flesh and blood person in front of you, loving in the messiness and ambiguities of our close relationships, our communities, our public life. Now, that's a different story. That is hard and humbling work. Just ask the Benedictines. At the center of this long-standing tradition and at the center of their monastic life together is a conviction that love of God and love of neighbor are bound together even when they seem to be in tension with each other. How do you love God? You pray and worship and study, and you love your neighbor. How do you love your neighbor? You serve, listen, welcome, respect, obey, and you love God. If you try to love God alone, you may be tempted into this self-absorbed piety or self-absorbed 
activism, running roughshod over people and sacrificing everyone and everything to your own salvation. On the other hand, if you try to love neighbor alone at the expense of love of God, you're likely to lose your center as you try to be all things to all people and forget that God is God and you are not. In both cases, there is a very real temptation to twist religion, to feed your own ego, or to support your own agenda. Benedictine monks are commanded to hold these two together and intention. They were commanded, commanded to do love for God by showing up for prayer, intentionally focusing on and listening to God, for God, at regular times throughout the day. This was the opus day, the work of God, and it was considered to be the very most important work that the Benedictines did. It communicated in a very concrete way that, as Benedictine Joan Chittister says, no stress is so tension-producing, no burden so complex, no work so exhausting, that God is not our greatest agenda, our constant companion, our rest, and our refuge. God is our greatest agenda. And yet, and yet, the Benedictine rule says, if a stranger happens to knock on the door during this great work of prayer, guess what the monks are to do? They are to stop their work of prayer, get up, go to the door, open it, and welcome the stranger as Christ in their midst. In this way, their prayer life, and even that very important rule about praying at regular times, it's interrupted and enriched, interrupted and enriched by the appearance of the stranger. Love of God and love of neighbor. It's easier said than done and understood, which is perhaps why we need to hear these commandments over and over. We need to listen to these commandments over and over, not just with our ears, but with our hearts. And that is perhaps why we must return to them, remember them again and again, and ponder anew each and every day, each and every moment. What does love of God and love of neighbor mean right here, right now, in this place and in this time and in this body? I commend that question to you. It's a critical question for us here, now, in this place and this time. Yes, in this place and this time that we are all living through, when so many are so scared, angry, divided, we are commanded to love. In this election season, in this pandemic, we, my friends, we Christians have to double 
down on love. We have to choose love, do love. We have really to choose God again and again and again. May our love of neighbor be grounded in and strengthened by our love of God. And may our love of God be embodied, brought down to earth in our love for one another. And in this place and in this time, may we, my friends, may we bear witness to the healing power of God's love. Amen.